Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles to John, chapter 10. Uh, This morning we're going to be reading and then studying verses 22 through 30. And if you're visiting with us, uh, this is what we typically do. We start in a book of the Bible and we don't stop preaching in it until we get to the very end and then we find another book and we preach through it and the goal is to have the, the main point of the sermon be the main point of the text of Scripture. It's called expository preaching. And so that's what we're after here again. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. Here John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Because, always a curious ending here, because you are not among my sheep, you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We believe that it is living and active. And then we pray then that you would make it to live to us. Give your Holy Spirit, who is all our hope and all our help as we work through your word together. May our hearts be encouraged greatly by the things we find in the text today. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So I remember... uh, trying to tackle the Grand Canyon when I was about 12 years old. I've never wanted my mom more. (laughs) Unfortunately, I was with my grandfather. It was a good thing. I was with an uncle, a couple of my cousins. And uh, so we went down several miles, middle of summer, and then back up again, and we were exposed to all of the elements there, desert heat down in the, the valley, actually chilling temperatures once you got up atop uh, the ridge there. There were snakes, and there were all kinds of heavy weights on me, and uh, they had the, the, those freeze-dried meals. Remember those things? As we're eating all that, and then there's donkey remains 
like all around us while we're trying to eat. And, and I just remember, again, as a 12-year-old boy, I just sat there once we got down and probably many times along the way and just cried. <laughs> mom, where I want my mom? And uh, anyway, some of you who know me in nature, this is why I'm like the way that I am. It's stuff like this. Uh, point being, I didn't know if I was going to make it. Uh, I didn't know if I was going to be able to finish the course. And the Christian life can sometimes, maybe even often, for lengthy seasons, feel just like that. It's a perilous journey without that one person who will do all they can to care for you so that you just cry. And you nearly succumb to to all of the elements, you think to yourself, honestly, I might not make it after all. The pressure is too much. The burdens are too heavy. The church is too light. The spiritual parents are too few. The meals are too meh. I can smell the manure from here. You, You add the suffocating insistence and seeming progress of sin in our world, our culture right now, and painful cries Help me, Father, become quite understandable. And they become opportunities to assure the Christian heart, as Jesus does today in our text, that he will hold you fast. I want us to hear, it is impossible for Christ's sheep to fall short of home. And so, dear beleaguered soul, you will persevere in the faith because our chief shepherd perseveres in preserving you. God himself, in Christ, is dedicated, feast of dedication, he is dedicated to keeping you all the way through it. So let's try to get at that fountain and drink deeply of it by way of our text, starting in verse 22, if you want to look there, and it's just more unbelief being exercised against Jesus. The grace in this passage we're going to see is a sweeping kind of grace, and the first half of our text shows us just how sweeping we need that grace to be. It's the Feast of Dedication, like I said, we know that feast to be something called Hanukkah, This is a festival of lights celebrating both the recovery of true worship and the hope of Messiah's advent. And what do we have here? But God incarnate, having been chased from the temple in chapter 8, now returned to the temple. Uh, We have the greater Solomon, that king of kings, Walking, verse 23, in Solomon's colonnade. Really, what we're seeing here is a a shot. It's a picture of the divine Christ and nothing less than the divine Christ. And in this gospel, it's his last visit to the city of God. It's the last time they'll have such access to Jesus before he comes back to die. So just think about that. Think about gathering around Jesus here, knowing what they don't, that this is is it. This is it. It's the last time, and it's not their first time having access to Him. They've had ongoing, steady access to Jesus. They've been witnesses to His words, 
and to his works, so that the looming question is, what have they done with it all? Will they have wasted this grace of God to them? Well, I'll just say that John's wintry note there, he says it's winter time. That note applies to more than just the weather in Jerusalem on that day. If I may take some license with it, after all of the light that Christ has shone upon them, they were still cold in their hearts towards Him. You see, one of John's aims has been to display Jesus plainly. But here's the thing. He's done that the way that Jesus did it, by an abundance of scriptural identity markers. Now, what's the problem with that? Very few people know their Bibles. That's the problem with that. The problem is not the method of Jesus. It's their lack of familiarity with that method. The problem is not, in other words, that Jesus uses the Bible to disclose who He is. It's that they don't truly know their Bibles. Laity and leaders alike, otherwise they would recognize Him for who He is and they would follow Him as the Word made flesh. But you see, verse 24, how far from making an honest inquiry to perhaps support a humble faith, they rather unjustly accuse him and they lay the problem entirely at Jesus' feet. He has not been honest with them. You have not been honest with us. You've not shot us straight. You've not answered us plainly, they say. But really, he's just not told them what they want to hear. How they want to hear it. This is unbelief in exercise against Jesus. It's the responsible refusal to take him at his word. That's it. The spiritual inability to see oneself as the problem so that Jesus must be the problem. This deeply embedded love of sin that goes into all-out defense mode whenever the Savior is plain. I am the good shepherd. Talked about in Ezekiel 34, verse 23. Who just opened the eyes of the blind in keeping with Isaiah 42, verse 7. No, tell us plainly, Jesus. Are you the Christ? Give us a yes or a no. But for people expecting a kind of Christ besides the one God actually promised, it's not that simple. It's not about giving them their yes or no. It's about God's yes and amen. They needed the Christ of Scripture. Can't be any more clear on that. They needed the Christ of Scripture. So that is what Jesus gave them. And if we would do saving good to souls today, we cannot give them anything less than the Christ of Scripture. We must give them Jesus in all of His grace, in all of His truth, in all of His glory, everything the Bible says about Him. Which brings us to this. 
We've got to know our Bibles. And we've got to know the Jesus we find in the Bible. Like, I mean, in the deeps. We, we can't be afraid to go deep in the text of Scripture, intellectually and experientially in spirit and in truth. We've got to learn to love Him with all of our hearts and souls and strength, yes, but also our minds. All of us. Everything in us. And we need then to, to be ready-made to introduce the unbelieving to that Christ. And maybe even to the believing. Recall these folks here are, they would say, believers in God. They're in the midst of a festival, a celebration, renewing their hope in the Messiah. It's just that Jesus does not match that for which they're looking. He has been biblically plain, but they are spiritually blind. And this is the direction Jesus takes in his response. He explains their unbelief in verses 25 and 26, if you look there. And sometimes we need to do this with people. We need to help them see the unbelief behind the curtain of their Christ-blaming questions. In other words, we cannot just leave them in spiritual neutral, thinking it really is just an honest question, when in reality, it's a real resistance to the Word. And listen, we can do that and be nice. We can be nice about doing that. And in fact, in uncovering unbelief and explaining unbelief, if we mean to persuade souls, forthrightness will be greatly helped by kindness. Like taking a large pill with a gulp of Chick-fil-A sweet tea or something like that. So that even if they don't believe, they might be more inclined to come back for more. Give me some of that sweet tea. But at any rate, Jesus gets plain with them here. They want plain, so here he goes. Verse 25, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Let's we'll pause there. And as we do, you'll notice what Jesus confirms. He has told them plainly. Meaning again, by constant allusion to those biblical identity markers. He has given them the Word of God. They have heard the Word of God. They just haven't believed Him. His words have been lost in translation. But that lostness, we need to hear now, that lostness is not a, a language thing. It's not like He's speaking Greek and they're speaking Aramaic or something like that. It's a heart thing. They actually share a peculiar language. They just do not share a peculiar kind of life. In the heart. How many hear Christ with their ears only? How many enter this room and hear the word, find access to the truth, process the gospel, have those, those saving facts, 
just run through their minds only ultimately to just push them off, cast them off, have that seed plucked up, burned up, choked out by the blinder of souls or the ire of unbelieving persons. I can't take the fear of man, the pressures that they put upon me, maybe by the the cares of the world, the devil, the the spiteful co-worker, the things you have to do this afternoon. They're already running through your head. Pluck, 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 pluck. No matter what it means for my soul. How we ought to pray against that. But see now, these here have more than heard, Jesus says. They've seen the works intended to support His words. He's not just been a wordsmith. He's also been a workman, as every good shepherd will be. And yet, being privy to to His entire ministry, they have remained... In unbelief. So see, as I said, how sweeping then does that grace need to be for us? Think. <laughs> He's turned water to wine. That had traveled to Capernaum and other places. He had revived a boy who was on the brink of death. He had healed the man at Bethesda who was lame. He had fed the thousands, John chapter 6. He had opened the eyes of a man born blind. And as recently as our verse 21, chapter 10, verse 21, we see that this was all rather common knowledge. Can a man who has opened the eyes of the blind have a demon? They know this. And what's more, as he's done so much of this on the Sabbath, on God's day, it's almost like he has said, hey listen, if you want to stop me, you can stop me. And yet God has not stopped him. And so Jesus just keeps doing divine works. So that as far back as John chapter 3, you may remember this with Nicodemus. Nicodemus has already been admitting Jesus is a man come from God. And nothing has happened since then to put that light out. And still the darkness in their hearts abides. What a darkness that is then. He depicts it in these terms. You do not believe. I think sometimes we just throw that language around like willy-nilly. That's not a believer. This is what is meant there. You do not believe. Unbelief is not due, as is so often argued, to a lack of evidence. The evidence is bountiful. The truth is very, very plain. Unbelief is a lack of will to believe the truth. It's an overwhelming will to live by a lie. What is that lie? It's this. You're good as you are. You're okay. You don't need all that. Disregard your conscience. Disregard Christ. Whatever you have heard about Jesus, whatever you have seen of Jesus, who really needs to be loved? 
by someone like that. Don't we have a a good thing going here between you and me and sin and self-deceit? Because we are about to enter the world of sovereign grace here in a moment. It is critical to see how in the same breath as he's continuing to explain unbelief, he puts an accent on both human responsibility, you do not believe, and divine sovereignty, as again we're about to see. Regardless then of what he says next, friend, listen to me this morning, if you have not, you must believe in him. You must believe in him. If you would be saved. And dear ones, listen, if we don't, we must repent and begin to seize upon every opportunity, make every effort to testify about Jesus calling on lost souls to exercise a biblical faith in Him. God has ordained ends, but He's also ordained means to accomplish those ends. Prayer, preaching, living, modeling, testifying. All these things. So now, speaking of in the same breath, Jesus gives, he's still explaining unbelief here, he gives the ultimate, I say ultimate cause of their unbelief in the final clause of verse 26. So let's read verse 26 together, very carefully. Jesus tells them, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. You're not part of my sheep. He doesn't say, you are not part of my flock, or you're not part of my sheep, because you do not believe. That's not what he says. That emphasizes our responsibility. It emphasizes the moment that we are found to be part of Christ's flock. No, on balance, he did that back in chapter 10, verse 9. I am the door, he said, if anyone what? Puts forth an actual action. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. It will be seen that that person is one of those sheep. Now here, Jesus has another angle in mind. The emphasis is not on what faith reveals us to be. Instead, it's on how that faith ever comes about. It's on Election is the word as the ultimate cause of belief. And in this case, he says unbelief. You do not believe. Why? Because you're not part of my flock. Jesus is explaining as this representative of the divine heavenly council, a mystery to us, why these folks here have continued, in spite of all his words and all of his works, have continued to reject him. His answer is, you're not part of my fold. You're not my sheep. You're not part of my flock. And so in this sense, election serves really as an apologetic for Jesus. He's telling us, this is, this is no surprise to me that you're continuing to reject me like this. Now, here's what I want us to hear. What we also must see is that this election is apparently our only hope of salvation. 
It should be clear by now, as we've been going through John, that people are so spiritually resistant to the truth of Jesus that they would never believe in Him without God's eternal and then gracious intervention in our lives. Recall, Jesus has already raised the question back in chapter 5, verse 44. He says there that we are so backwards from God. He Himself, the Son of God, poses the question, how can you believe? In our text, here's the ultimate answer. Sovereign grace. And it should be immensely humbling for us to discover this. That left to ourselves, we would have lived and died in our sin and unbelief and spent all eternity in hell. And how it is only by God's free and merciful choice of us then that we ever came to choose Christ. How it was that He loved us first that we ever came to love Him at all. And how then we get all the grace. We get all the grace and He gets all the glory that we should ever be saved. It's very hard to give God His due praise while we're still very great in our own eyes. So, He gives us the doctrine of election (laughs) upon which He's going to build. He presses it further here, you see, He's just given a a nod to eternal grace, how God set apart a single great flock for Jesus to be the undeserving beneficiaries of His special or particular love, a love as old as God Himself, and then He moves on from it to its application in our lives. So, say, July 17th, 1999, which is when verse 27 happened to me. Now, you don't have to know that. Some do, some don't. I do. You might not. That's okay. The point is, there was a time when this grace (laughs) detonated in your heart and you became a Christ follower. You became a Christian. That's what Jesus is doing in verse 27. He's been explaining unbelief. Now he explains belief in him. So he says there, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So the first thing there, you see, is his voice. We hear his voice. The gospel is is vocalized. Our, Our ears hear the good news about Jesus. But now we got to do really careful work here. Okay? Doctrine is in the details. we got to do really careful work here. Remember that these folks to whom He is speaking here, they also have heard Him over and over and over again with their ears. And so, at this point, while He's about to speak the difference between us and them, His sheep and these goats, we're yet no different at this point. We've all heard it. Everyone's heard. And 
just so it doesn't get lost in the woods here, see, Christ must be heard. He must be heard. Mysterious, sovereign grace does not cancel out responsible evangelism. It does not make missions unnecessary. It doesn't make the Great Commission superfluous. It actually necessitates it. Ends and means. No one gets saved without hearing the gospel. Romans chapter 10. So we've got to go. You've got to go this week. And you've got to go and preach the gospel to people. That's how they're going to get saved. But now, here's all the difference on how they respond to the gospel. You ready? Look at that verse again. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And thus they follow me. So again, careful. Jesus, as we've come to expect, is so fine and so perfect <laughs> with his words. It's not, they hear me, they hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. What does he actually say? He says, they hear my voice, and what? Go ahead. I know them. And consequently, they follow me. So what distinguishes one who hears his voice with the ears only from one who hears it with the heart? What distinguishes one who hears it and doesn't believe from one who hears it and believes? The answer is right there in the middle of verse 27. I know them. That's the, the portal, so to speak, from hearing the gospel to following Jesus. I know them. It's the great moment that Jesus knew you. Do you recall it? When you were born again. When grace made you alive from the dead. When the gospel truth became truly gospel. Good news. When Jesus became altogether lovely to you, when that peace of God by the blood of Christ flooded your sinful soul. Maybe you've never thought of it this way before, but that was the living Jesus knowing you. Or, we might say, it was Jesus making Himself known to you. It was your eternal shepherd giving you ears that heard His voice just like that. That's my eternal shepherd. That's why you've believed. Eternal election graciously detonated at a point in time. You were set free indeed from your bondage to sin. The living Lord made you alive to Him such that, listen now, such that it was really all your desire to love and follow Him. Before we leave that point, do note just that. How in explaining the onset of faith in Him, 
Jesus cannot avoid putting legs on that faith. Faith in Christ is here described as following Christ. It's not dissimilar from John chapter 8, verse 31. Do you remember that? If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Here it's my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Same thing as abiding in my word. They follow me. Is this the defining reality in your life this morning? Right practice, we have to understand, will accompany a true profession of faith in Jesus. Are we trusting Christ's voice? Are we believing the best about His Word and His will and His heart? Are we being obedient to Scripture? Are we readily putting ourselves, our feelings, our persuasions, our situations, our decisions under the divine authority of biblical revelation? On, say, ethics, evangelism, doctrine, disciplines, attitudes, priorities of our life, body life in this church, and so on. Where that's happening, there is a living faith. Which is the only sort that Jesus gives. And where it's given, where you have followed Him, you are going to need the immense comfort that follows in verses 28 to 30. As I thought on it this week, it took me a minute to figure out what seemed to me a really unexpected emphasis, specifically our security. And so I just thought and I thought and I thought. I'm sure there's more to consider, but here's how the dots connected for me. You ready? No one follows Jesus without first having to take up a cross. No one enters his fold without being marked out by his enemies for the same kind of trials, the same kind of attacks, the same kind of temptations and difficulties, even deaths, that he himself endured. Beloved, listen. The blind man's parents forsook him to the authorities for Jesus' sake. His, his natural community, his ethnic community, ex communicated him for standing with Jesus. And perhaps then you too will be excoriated by loved ones for Jesus. Maybe you'll be passed over for a job that you wanted because of Jesus. He's so plain in your life. And maybe you'll be the subject of unjust bias and criticism at school. Uh, maybe you'll be put in prison, ultimately, for standing fast with Jesus, your testimony to Him. Maybe you'll be dealt a, a bitter hand that the devil just loves to squeeze. Or maybe you'll be your own worst enemy from time to time. Maybe like Peter, you'll just fall flat on your face. I will go through death for you, Jesus. No, you won't. You'll deny me three times. And he did. And he felt flat on his face. And Jesus picked him up. 
Maybe, like Timothy, you'll find it hard to really cast your cares upon the Lord and the stress of it all will just take its toll upon you. Maybe, like the psalmist, you'll often feel abandoned by your God for reasons you don't really know. Maybe you're you're going to face a, a temptation or encounter a sin and it just beats you to death over and over, time and time again. Listen, in Romans chapter 8, verse 36, we're told that in following Jesus, we are regarded as sheep. The rest of the verse says, to be slaughtered. What an identity. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Killed all day long. And so to come to it, you begin to wonder. You begin to wonder in those canyons. Am I going to make it? Am I going to ultimately, finally forfeit the life that Jesus has given to me? Am I going to come up short of the finish line? Am I going to lose my grip on the Lord Jesus Christ? And being honest, if our endurance finally depends on us, the answer must be yes. But it doesn't depend on us. And it's not because the the certainty of our Endurance, the assurance of our salvation is determined. Uh, It's determined not by the strength of our grip upon Jesus, but by the strength of Jesus' grip on us. That is an anchor for the soul. He will hold us fast. That's the lesson to close. Jesus wants believers in Him to be encouraged in Him. So He says, verse 28. I give them, my sheep, eternal life, and they will never perish. They will die, maybe, unless he comes first. They will die, their body will give out, but they will never perish. What a word. That in Jesus we are impervious to the judgment due our sins. Because he will bear their sins and put away their penalty and die their death for them and in that exchange afford them His obedience to God to be their very own. They, His sheep, are qualified for His reward which is eternal life. And dear ones, already you're in possession of that. And so just get a grip on that. There will never be a point in this life or after 10 zillion years in glory at which your sin will out-penalty His blood-bought pardon. And to be sure, our sin in meriting eternal judgment was sin enough to merit it even after 10 zillion years. And yet, it will never touch you because Jesus has so completely finished making atonement for you. His grace is truly greater than all our sins and the judgment they deserve. And His grip on us then is no less great. 
He hasn't given you that life without taking you into His hand. And that is really what He wants to communicate to you right here in our text. It's not as much about the kind of life that He gives to you as it is about the power of Him who's given that life. It's about His almighty will to keep us. Has that will made it into your heart? That promise into your notions of persevering, of finishing the race set before you. I mean, really, what can so worry us hearing these words of Jesus? No one will snatch them out of my hand. And then, in case we just don't get it, he strengthens that grip and says, Oh, and also, my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. So Christ's grip on His sheep is the very grip of God. That's what he's saying. So there is neither opposing will nor power in all creation strong enough to separate us from our shepherd's grip. His love displayed on the cross is the most powerful preservative in existence. My sweet Lydia uh, she has the tendency to drop things left and right. Uh, we tenderly call her our butterfingers. And uh, often, well then, she'll pick things up and we're like, oh, I'll take that for you, right? We take things out of her hands to secure a safe delivery of whatever's in them. Okay. The father did not commit his people to a butterfingers. Christ does not have greased up grip on us. No matter how greasy our grip is on Him. He will never let us go. He will never drop us. We will never experience any soul-threatening thing, but we will do so right in the palm of His almighty, preserving hand. That's incredible. Nothing you experience in your life as a Christian is outside of that palm. It's all there. And He's never going to let you go. In short, we cannot be lost because today to forever we are kept by the gift of the grip of God in Christ. And if I might make it even more personal to us, as I invite you just now to think on your own life, your past, your present, your future. I would encourage us in this. Listen, Jesus never misses a sheep for the fold. He never misses a sheep for the fold. Well, I'm the least. I'm the weakest. I'm the worst. I'm the dirtiest. 
and so on. And surely he has bigger, more important things to which he must attend. And so I am sure to be forgotten by him. Never. That fold, I'll just have you know, is like billions. It's not a little one. It's a big one. A really big one. It is billions. And his responsibilities are unsearchable. He is God incarnate. Notwithstanding that, he never loses his careful sight of you. He who upholds the universe is always mindful in the process of particularly upholding just you. Strengthening just you. Healing just you. Restoring just you. Feeding just you. Bringing just you all the way home. It's later in this Gospel of John, but you can hear it from Jesus Himself. He says there in John 17, O Father, those that You have given to Me, I have kept them, I have guarded them, and listen, not one of them has been lost. Oh, man. I told you, this saving grace is how sweeping we do need it to be. As you'll see, the folks who heard this first do not now follow him. Instead, they try again to stone him. And so, friend, my question to you this morning is, how will you respond to Jesus? His sheep hear his voice, and he knows them, and they follow him. And so let me just urge you to do the same. To turn from your sins and believe in Jesus for eternal life. The eternal life that He loves to give. And please, if that happens right now, don't leave without coming to tell us about it. We want to rejoice with you. Dear ones, Jesus is the good shepherd. He will hold us fast. The, the certainty of that is no less than the invincibility of God's love for us, displayed for us in Christ. He will never lose that for which He died and lives to keep. Canyons will come. And in them we may think, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. Well, let Jesus reassure you today. You will make it because He will persevere in preserving you. It's part of His shepherding task at which He is omnipotently gracious and very, very good. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank You for Your Word. I do ask now that You would bring the full weight of all this grace and all this comfort to bear upon our hearts. I pray that not a single soul would be able to have come in this morning and walk out without being forever altered. I pray that the lost now would be found, that you would bring them in. And I pray for your sheep. And I ask, Lord, that we would again just find so much joy, so much peace, so much confidence, 
assurance and comfort in our chief shepherd. We ask it for our good and your glory in your name. Amen.